You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. We're in this conversation about our work, uh, Facebook, and uh, these coffee conversations, Let's Do Lunch, uh, Dave Roar's class. There's a lot of activity going on. Um, what we're going to find, what we already are finding as we engage in this conversation, is that our work is much greater than our jobs. I saw this in particular uh, in one of our fourth graders who a couple of weeks sitting in the worship service where you are pulled out the uh, insert in the bulletin and started to answer the questions of our survey. His name is Ethan, and uh, in answer to the question, what do you do for work, he wrote, chopping wood. <laughs> and then why do you go to work, uh, what motivates you to get strong? Uh, he was asked, uh, what do you find life-giving in your work? And he said, a good fire. <laughs> that, that's good. Years of experience? 14 days. <laughs> and my favorite, how do you feel that your work life interacts with your spiritual life? And he gets it right when he says, God gave me the power to do it. Uh, Studs uh, Terkel, the uh, Chicago journalist, put together a wonderful book uh, called Working. And it's just really a compendium of people's stories about their work lives, all different kinds of careers. And uh, one of the stories is uh, an interview he did by, with a woman named Nora Watson, who is a 28-year-old staff writer for a healthcare publisher. And, and Nora makes this point that work has to be bigger uh, than your job. She says, jobs are not big enough for people. It's not just the assembly line worker whose job is too small for his spirit, you know. A job like mine. If you really put your spirit into it, you would sabotage immediately. You don't dare. So you absent your spirit from it. My mind has been so divorced from my job, except as a source of income. It's really absurd. I think most of us are looking for a calling, not a job. If you're looking for a calling, not just a job, the best place to begin looking is the book of Genesis, the first chapter, the very beginning of the Bible. And so this is our text. I would invite you to open up to page one, uh, Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 28. And if you are able, would you uh, stand that we might read God's word aloud together as his people when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. This is the word of the Lord. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Living and risen Jesus Christ, pour forth your spirit now. That you who spoke by your word life into existence over the formless and void might speak life into your church, into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The question of our text is not, do you have a job? The question in our text is, will you give yourself to your kingdom assignment? As I've been reading Genesis 1 this week and last, I'm struck by how God chooses to introduce himself to human history. I mean, this is chapter 1 of the good book. And it has a lot to say about the origins of life and the one who is supreme over them, to be sure. But you do not want to miss the fact that when God presents himself to humanity, he chooses to do so as a construction worker. An Israelite construction worker. I think this is amazing. He gives us his schedule for seven days. It's like a timesheet that an Israelite might have handed to his Egyptian taskmaster. This is how I spent my week. Uh, on the first day, I did this, and then there was night and there was day. Notice the implication being he doesn't work like an Israelite at night, needs his rest. And then there was the next day, day two, and I, I did this, I made that, and on and on and on throughout six days of creation. And then on the seventh day, we read, God rested from all of his work. God is at work. I just keep scratching my head saying, why would God not introduce himself as a supreme ruler, rich and brilliant, untouched by human toil? Why would he instead descend to the level of you and me, frankly, and say, I work. In your work. It's an extraordinary God. But he shows up in ordinary work. Do you know how he does that? We want to ask uh, the text three questions. The first is this. What is God's work? And the second. What is a person? Or a human being? And then finally. How does God show up? In our work? So, first, what is God's work? Well, we read day one, he attends to the raw materials of formless and void. Tohu vavohu in Hebrew. That which has no form, just utter blank, unbeing, chaos. And void, emptiness. And it's to these two things that God applies his work. He begins to work on them. We notice a couple of things. He begins to take that which is formless and give it form by making these separations, these distinctions. He orders that which is without form. And having done so, we find he will create spaces, empty, void spaces, 
And he will fill them. He will occupy them with, with personality, with living beings. I know there's a lot of debate about the first chapter of Genesis and what it tells us and its scientific or historical implications. We can ask all those questions, but I think it's always important to ask what the writer thought the meaning of the text was about. And the writer is the one who gives us a unique literary construction in Genesis 1. It's very tightly knit together, extremely uh, poetic. And I want to show you what that looks like when you start to map it out. So I have a, a slide for you here that depicts for us the literary structure of Genesis chapter 1. Notice that there are uh, three pairs of days, and then there is a seventh day that rests atop them all. On the first day, God creates, uh, through separation, uh, spaces, domains. He separates light from dark. He returns to those domains on the fourth day and creates rulers for them. The sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. On the second day, God makes a separation. It's a vertical separation of waters. Waters below from the waters above. In the ancient Hebrew cosmology, uh, the sky was an expanse, like a beaten piece of metal, and it held back the waters of heaven that would sometimes percolate through and give us rain. He makes this vertical uh, uh, distinction and creating two domains. On the fifth day, the Lord returns. Uh, Day five, then God takes those empty spaces and fills them with life. The fish to fill the sea and the birds to fill the sky. On the third day of creation, God makes a horizontal separation. The waters from the dry land. This gives him an opportunity to put land creatures on day six. And indeed, he returns to create all the, and this is my favorite, things that creep. Creepy things, creeping things on the earth. I relate to that. And supreme among them all is you, human beings, to rule over all, heretofore mentioned by the narrator or the poet. And then finally, on the seventh day, the supreme ruler, the king over all this great and rich kingdom, sits enthroned as God. Day seventh, in Sabbath rest, receiving the worship of its uh, creatures and the whole created order. So, God seems to be making something that says something about divine rule. It's an order of being. There's something else to notice here. And that is, uh, there's been some suggestion that if you look at this tripartite order, it may in some way be reminiscent of an ancient Near Eastern temple, which would be a house of a god which would also be an icon of a divine rule. So have a look at this, and you see maybe a familiar image to you. This is a, a simple uh, ancient Near Eastern ziggurat from Mesopotamia, and you notice immediately three levels. That God seems to be building a temple, a sanctuary, a place to display his glory and goodness, is suggested by the language of further revelation. In the Old Testament, we see this architectural imagery used of the natural order. So, for example, in Psalm 104, we read that 
he lays the beams of his upper chambers on the waters of the heavens. Remember that expanse. It's as though the waters above the heavens are the third story, the upper chamber of, uh, of the cosmos. In Isaiah 66, the Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. It's all about a portrayal of my ruling. Psalm 150 says, praise God in his sanctuary, his mighty expanse. There, that expanse is the reference for sky. Praise God in the natural order. All creation is his sanctuary. And then finally, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So, the cosmos is a sanctuary, the natural order. Oh, yes, we have sanctuaries like this one that speak to us of God's glory, and Israel would have a tabernacle and a temple that would do the same. But God says, if you really want to see, if you really want to see my glory, well, you go out into the wilderness, you go out into the outdoors, you go out into space, and there you will behold, in the ordinary stuff, of the natural order, my goodness. So God is making a, a cosmos that portrays his rule. That's God's work. This leads us to the second question. Well, if that's what God is doing, what is a person in that context? And here I, I would say that Nora Watson, our healthcare uh, author, has it just right. She says jobs are just not big enough for people. And no, they're not. People are more than mere employees. We read here in verse 26 uh, a description of what God intends to make of people when speaking in inner uh, uh, Trinitarian dialogue, we assume from a latter uh, perspective. The Lord says, Let us make humankind in our image, as our images as God-bearing images, as facsimiles, as representatives. That's what he's after. A lot of debate about what it means to be made in the image of God. I don't think it's that complicated if you take the literary context seriously. Forget about forms of Greek philosophy. The context will tell us, First of all, the word image comes most likely from the Hebrew word to hew or to cut. It'd be the word that you would use if you had taken a stump of wood and tried to fashion out of it some kind of an idol. That's interesting. God prohibits the manufacture of idols in the Ten Commandments. Why now? We know because you, you are the only authorized version of God's representation. In the ancient Near Eastern uh, context, oftentimes a king was referred to as the image of that people's deity. The ruler of a nation was thought to be a representative of the God, the God's spirit or breath or even fluid somehow was inside of this image. So archaeologists have unearthed uh, various um, examples of this. We found Assyrian royal inscriptions on a winged disc that speaks of the image of the great God. 
We read elsewhere a Mesopotamian salutation. It says, O king of the inhabited world, you are the image of the god Marduk. See, the king is an image of the invisible god, Marduk. And uh, King Tut, Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun means the living image of the god Amun. So the Egyptian kings also fancied themselves earthly representatives of their gods. We see this in the Bible. In Daniel chapter 3, do you remember what King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon orders to be constructed on the plains of Dura? It's an image. It's 90 feet tall, made out of gold. And remember what is supposed to happen? Whenever you hear the music, keep your iPod off, because when you hear the music, you bow down and worship. I'm not going to be there myself, but my image is going to be there. And where my image is, there my authority rests. It's as good as me. So kings would erect these effigies of themselves in their conquered territories, in a bust or a head or a statue of themselves, lest people in that land forget who is the king of that land, who does hold authority, who governs it, who protects it. So it seems that to be an image is to rule as a vice-regent on behalf of an invisible God. And, of course, the context confirms that, because as soon as God has said, let us make humankind in our image, he goes on to say, let them have dominion. Let them rule. What's so striking about this is that for a nation, Israel, there is not one image of God's rule. Every single human being in Israel and beyond, we are told, is an image of the invisible God. Every human being, everyone at your school, everyone in your office, everyone in your family, everybody that drives by you like a maniac on the freeway is an image of the living God. So when you dress for work, whatever that is, you strap on the diaper bag, your man purse, or what you, when, when, when you get on that uniform, you pull on those coveralls, you put on that suit, whatever it is, the name tag that you use when you go to work, these are symbols of divine rule that you take upon yourself. You are preparing yourself to represent the great king of creation. Which leads us to the final question, which is how does God show up in what we do? How, how does he uh, appear? In, in, another way of thinking about it is, what's the music? Nebuchadnezzar had his lute and trumpet and whatsoever, and when it was played, then there was a moment of recognition. Ah, the king's authority. What is our music? What triggers that realization? What draws the visibility of God's kingdom down into this order of being? Well, it has to do with our work. God, remember, shows up in your work. Verse 28 is the assignment. It's called by theologians the cultural mandate. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. He assigns to us the work of a king, a vice regent. You go now and rule. The work itself is very similar, do you notice, to the work that God undertook in Genesis chapter 1 at the beginning? He says, fill the earth. Remember, God had been filling the void and the empty spaces. And he says, subdue. That is to order it, to bring forth its latent goodness, to bring it to visibility, to bring it to usefulness, to bring it to the surface. So, in essence, we are invited to do, no, even commanded to do the very same thing that God has done in the first six days of creation. I remember when I was uh, with my kids and and they were young, uh, the days, uh, we were driving somewhere and I had this kind of informal catechesis with them when I would ask them questions and hope to elicit a response and engage them in some conversation, which does not work with teenagers, by the way. And we were talking about God's love. And uh, I said, you know, who made everything? And one of the kids said, God made everything. And I said, that is so good. You know, that's right. Uh, and, but then another voice piped up and said, God didn't make everything. And I thought, oh, my goodness, here's the rebel, right? <laughs> Saying, yeah, I'm trying patiently to explain, no, God's a great creator. Everything exists, exists as a, a, a manifestation. It's contingent upon his being and... Well, okay, I get all that, but who made the car, Dad? Uh, someone in Detroit? Someone, someone's around the world? I don't. Well, who made the Velcro on my little shoes, Dad? I don't think God did that. You know, in the flashy sneakers that light up when they put their feet down. As it turns out, God made a lot in six days, but there's a lot He did not make. And so he presents creation to us with that dreaded phrase on Christmas Eve that says, assembly required. It's all there. Everything you're going to need, all the parts. It may take you millennium to discover them and how they fit together. But that's your problem. Because I've done my part. And now people will see me and my goodness as you do yours. As you work. A lot of things that God hadn't created. Two things in particular. One, he hadn't made very many people. In this account, we're not really told how many people. But in the next chapter, it appears that there have just been two. Now, some of us think that work didn't exist in the Garden of Eden. It's just a sign of the fall. Well, no, actually. God gave the gift of work as part of human nature. And in chapter 2, verse 15, we see that the man is set within the garden in order to till it, to cultivate it, to conserve it, to bring out its beauty. And I ask myself, okay, how big was this garden? If we've just got two people, I mean, I I have a very uh, small little piece of property that I sit on and try to cultivate, and it gets the best of me. I mean, the spiders are getting the best of me. how big would, must have been a quarter of an acre, half an acre? Maybe they could manage an acre. Okay, it could be five acres. Who knows? Adam and Eve may have been extremely industrious. But it's going to be a long time before we get any Colombian coffee, right? <laughs> I mean, God is very clear. He wants this whole creation filled with image-bearing, glory-portraying human beings. 
It's pregnant with life. Bring it forth. It's going to take more than two, two people. And God does not create those people. He gives the task to mom and dad. You go. You go bring people. You nurture life. That's, that's a big project. The other thing he doesn't create very much of is, is what I would call infrastructure. I mean, I don't know how thick this garden is, but there are no paths, there are no roads, there are no flashlights, there are no radios, telephones, buses, none of that stuff. And you cannot have a wholesome, rich, peace-experiencing humanity without infrastructure. You've got to have it. I was reminded in 1996, you know, we were holding the uh, Olympic Games in America, and it was down in Atlanta. I don't know if you remember the, the stress leading up to that. See, Atlanta has got, the city itself is half a million people. And the greater Atlanta metro area is uh, three million people. But the organizers were anticipating two million visitors from around uh, the world. Now, you and I know that when you have a mass of humanity without infrastructure, we call that uh, a human uh, aid crisis. And, and so they were working for years to try to get you know, roads, buses, communication, uh, health dispensaries. Uh, uh, my favorite was the porta-potties. They, they had uh, 2,000 porta-potties. So I, I'm not a math major, but I calculated that's one porta potty for 1,000 people. Uh, you supersize your lunch, you're going to have a long wait. Um, but the point is, God needs you to do what only you have been called to do in order to build the infrastructure that would sustain a race of vice regents portraying God's glory. And that's what your work does. You're ruling through agriculture, through finance, through transportation, through technology, through family work, through mediation, through scholarship and studies. All of these things are ways in which we rule. God is at work in your work. George MacDonald wrote a children's book called The Genius of Willie McMichael. And Willie asks his father a question. Does God work? Yes, Willie. It seems to me that God works more than anybody, for he works all night and all day. And if I remember rightly, Jesus tells us somewhere that he works all Sunday, too. If he were to stop working, everything would stop being. The sun would stop shining and the moon and the stars. The corn would stop growing. There would be no apples and gooseberries. Your eyes would stop seeing. Your ears would stop hearing. Your fingers couldn't move an inch. And worst of all, your little heart would stop loving. No, Papa, cried Willie. I shouldn't stop loving, I'm sure. Indeed, you would, Willie. Not you and Mama, yes. You wouldn't love us any more than if you were asleep without dreaming. That would be dreadful. Yes, it would. So you see how good God is to us to go on working, that we may be able to love each other. Then, if God works like that all day long, it must be a fine thing to do work, 
said Willie. You're right. It is a fine thing to work. The finest thing in the world. If it comes of love, as God's work does. And then MacDonald adds a note. The conversation made Willie quite determined to learn to knit. If God worked, he would work too. And although the work he undertook was a very small work, it was like all God's great works. For every loop he made had a little love looped up in it, like an invisible, soft, downy lining to the stockings. After those, he went on knitting a pair for his father and learned to work with a needle as well and to darn the stockings he had made. Are you prepared for God to be in your work this week? I want, to, I want to leave you with an assignment. This is your kingdom assignment. I think about how strange it must have been for the Israelites to perceive that God had entered into their work and how precious this text must have been to them as they saved it. As a reminder that Though among all the other nations of the earth, work was nothing more to them than the daily grind to the Israelites. It was the place where God's eternal goodness showed up, burst out. And so you and I at UPC are part of a similar community. We are people who knows that when we go to work, school, the office, the home... Today and tomorrow, we have an opportunity to portray, to reflect the glory of the great king. And so, uh, two weeks from now, we're going to see that Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God. And Jesus Christ has gathered us as a community who, as I said earlier, know ourselves to be commissioned. We also have an assignment. We also have a mandate to go. And find those places. This week, there will be places across your path of formlessness. You're going to come across chaos. And you're going to have an opportunity and the resource to bring some order to it. You're going to come across emptiness, vacant spaces. And you will have an opportunity to step in and fill that space with life and nurture and love. That's your assignment this week. I say that not just because it's statistically probable, but I say that because you and I have been called by Jesus Christ expressly for this purpose. Give yourself to that assignment this week. I want to close uh, with a video that gives you a little glimpse into what this looked like in two people's lives as they engaged around commerce. But before I do, let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we give you thanks for the privilege of being your images in the world. That we don't just have jobs. Some of us don't have jobs at all. And yet every single one of us has work, a kingdom assignment. We ask that you give us eyes to see it this week. And that you will give us the courage and faith to alter our path. That we might love with your love and bring the life of our Lord Jesus Christ greater visibility at this time and in this place. In his name we pray. Amen.
For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.